I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Dr. Keith Smith, managing partner and co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. We talk about how his experiences in the medical field led him to create a facility based on transparent, direct, package pricing, and how their cash-based system saves their patients thousands of dollars and gives them excellent outcomes. But first, what's ahead? Bitcoin has been on a tear this year, rising some 160% to a record level. One factor is that institutional investors are increasingly treating cryptocurrencies as an investment category, giving it a legitimacy they previously lacked. Also adding luster is the creation of central bank cryptocurrencies, most notably China's desire to have a digital yuan. Bitcoin has become the king of cryptocurrencies, overshadowing all others. Investors believe if you want to dip your toe in the cryptocurrency world, Bitcoin is the way to go. But the biggest booster of the Bitcoin boom is the fear that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are printing too much money. Bitcoin is seen by many as a hedge against inflation and governments misbehaving financially. To them, Bitcoin is better than that age-old inflation hedge, gold. The price of the yellow metal has risen, but not nearly as much as Bitcoin. This notion is a mistake. What too many cryptocurrency enthusiasts miss is that for a variety of reasons, gold retains its intrinsic value better than anything else on Earth and has done so for 4,000 years. When you see the dollar price of gold fluctuate, what you are seeing is really the value of the dollar itself changing, not the value of gold. Gold is the constant. That unique property is not true of Bitcoin. Yes, its supply is restricted to 21 million, and 18 million have been mined electronically. But its value has been like a roller coaster. Steak one day, dog food the next, fillet the day after that. Money works best when it has a stable value, when it doesn't fluctuate as the dollar and other currencies do now. We assume a foot has 12 inches, an hour 60 minutes. The physical volume of a gallon doesn't change each day, it's fixed. Experience has repeatedly demonstrated for thousands of years that fixing a currency to gold is the best way to achieve monetary stability. We did very well on the gold standard here in the U.S. from the 1790s to the 1970s, achieving the highest rates of growth in human history. Our economy has not performed as well since we severed the dollars linked to gold in the early 1970s. Bitcoin remains too volatile to be a long-term store of value like gold has traditionally done. Bitcoin's arbitrary supply limit will severely hinder its future usefulness. By contrast, the supply of gold, on average, increases about 2% a year. That keeps it rare, but not too rare. As Bitcoin evolves, it may well become the new gold, but that day is not yet here. For now, gold is the best insurance against inflation. And now, my interview with Keith Smith. My special guest today is Dr. Keith Smith. He's managing partner and co-founder of the Legendary Surgery Center of Oklahoma. He's also a co-founder of the Free Market Medical Association, promoting transparency in medicine where it is still badly needed. But his surgery center has made history. He says healthcare really doesn't cost that much, but what people are charged for it is altogether another matter. His co-founding partner, Dr. Stephen Lantier, put it a different way. He said the question is not why we are so low cost. The real question is why others are so expensive. Before we get to our conversation, let me just throw out some numbers. 
A knee replacement at certain hospitals can cost as much as $40,000. Surgery center, $8,260. What is called a complex bilateral sinus procedure at a hospital costs almost $40,000. At the surgery center, $5,885. Tonsillectomy, certain hospitals, ten dollars to $15,000 or more. Surgery center, around $3,000. Certain kinds of fusion back surgeries, $60,000 at some institutions, $8,500 at the surgery center. But it's not just low prices because they're so efficient and surgeons are not waiting around for an operating room or other administrative rigmarole. They can do up to twice as many surgeries at the center as they do at traditional hospitals. There was a case of a Georgia patient who called from Georgia wanting a certain procedure. The local hospital in Georgia, $40,000. Surgery center price, $3,600. When that patient went to the local hospital and said, I can go to Oklahoma and get it at one-tenth of the price, suddenly the local hospital cut its price to $3,600. As Dr. Smith says, this happens more than once. It is fun watching price-gouging hospitals matching our prices. The surgery center was founded in 1997 owned by partners. You can find it at Surgery Center OK, stands for Oklahoma, surgerycenterok.com. Hundreds of surgeries are performed there. They're associated with over 115 surgeons, treat thousands of patients each year. Keith, what you did was absolutely revolutionary, but the ability to question things as they are and follow through on them really came through your parents, both of whom were teachers, left-wing teachers, but they believed in questioning things, and they had heard back in the 1970s disturbing things about the Soviet Union, which they had sort of admired from afar. They decided to go there and see for themselves. Tell us about their trip and the impact it had on you and your journey to uh, true free market medicine, where you get better results at far lower prices. That's a it's a great story, and and thank you again for having me. Um, yeah, my mother and father, as you said, way left of center could not believe that communist Russia was nearly as bad as Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan said it was. And they, they're they very open-minded people, though. They're not closed-minded at all. And they decided to go to Moscow and tour Russia and see it for themselves. And uh, when they got back, they were completely changed. Uh, my dad was trying to figure out how he could become a capitalist without capital. Uh, and <laughs> He joined Amway and he borrowed money and got into real estate and rental property, but he was completely transformed. Now, my brother got off to medical school about the time they returned. And I remember him coming home for his first Christmas visit and wondered what had happened to his parents you know, because my mom and dad were completely transformed uh, by this visit, seeing as people always saw when they went over there, just long lines. Uh, I think that what really set the hook on my mom and dad was when they asked someone who was in a long line what they were in line for, and the person did not know. They just knew at the front of it was something they could probably not otherwise get were they not in that line. So, yeah, they were they were transformed. Uh, my dad started his journey along with my mom to learn about freedom and liberty, and we wound up taking this journey together, really. So we, as a family, we really had this philosophical journey away from government can do everything best to government can't get anything right. 
Uh, and and it, it's remarkable how far uh, they were actually able to to go on this journey, considering where they started. Well, you uh, entered a profession where certain things are done a certain way. You uh, became an anesthesiologist in the early 1990s, but you didn't like what you were seeing. The journey to the opening of the surgery center was uh, sort of uh, uh, incubating with you for several years. What did you see that really turned you off, especially about allegedly nonprofit hospitals? Yeah, I, I think um, as an outgrowth of my philosophical journey, I, I realized the golden rule was the way that people should uh, and naturally did interact with each other. And I wanted, I wanted to be a physician partly because of the whole concept of mutually beneficial exchange. And so I assumed very naively when I entered this profession that everyone in this profession, including people that ran hospitals and insurance companies, had the same ideas. So I, I started my practice and, and began to find very quickly that you know, the hospital administrators were not my friend. They were actually my enemy. And even worse, they were the financial adversary of the, many of the patients that entered their doors. Um, I found myself having to acknowledge that I was truly an accomplice, an accessory to a financial crime. And a lot of the surgeons that I worked with uh, came to the same conclusion that that we were actually tools uh, in an enterprise uh, meant to financially devastate patients that came through the door. So I, I didn't sign up for that. That was not philosophically what I wanted to do. And the only way to escape becoming a really a financial adversary of patients was to gain control over the institution. Most physicians, I think, embrace the concept of mutually beneficial exchange. Uh, I think this hit and run mentality is, uh, is the predominant one at uh, most hospitals in the United States, particularly those who claim to not make a profit. So walking away and establishing our own facility where we had control over what patients were charged, including not charging them at all, uh, was the only way uh, for us to escape a situation where we felt horrible for being actually even involved in patient care. We'll discuss in a moment why costs at traditional hospitals are so high, the administrative bloat there and procedures and the practices that just lead to unnecessary uh, costs. But uh, first, tell us about the hunting trip in 1997, where you finally got this thing off the ground. And then how did you go out and determine what should a price be? You knew what the hospitals charged, sort of, but how, how did you come up with your own numbers? Yeah, the hunting trip is a great story. I, I knew that if I walked out of the hospitals that I was going to have to either build my own facility from ground up or buy one that was already operational. And I'd had my eye on one that had been really terribly mismanaged uh, and that I thought was failing. And I was right. It was failing. But I could not get anybody who had a right hand to find out where their left hand was. No, no one who ran this organization could tell me who to talk to with regards to pursuing a purchase path. So I tried for five years. I tried to build one tried to buy two or three, and it was I just couldn't get it done and found myself on a hunting trip talking to these people at this hunting lodge that I had just met, and it turned out they worked 
for this company that had mismanaged this surgery center. And I said, well, I want to buy it. And they said, well, we'll look like heroes if we can unload this wart from our portfolio. And so we made a deal on this hunting trip, really, to buy the surgery center of Oklahoma for a very reasonable price. Uh, And the deal went through about 90 days later after some legal wrangling uh, because of how it was owned. Uh, And Steve Lantier and I walked out of our anesthesia practices with 10 surgeons with us. And uh, 30 days after we we purchased the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, we actually did our first case. We wanted to charge patients a fair price. And our mission was to never take a dime of money from the government because that really does contaminate any business operation as far as I'm concerned. And we also wanted patients to know upfront how much they were going to pay. The first week, we had a patient call a young lady uh, with a breast mass. And I think going through her example will give people an idea of how we come up with our pricing even to this day. She wanted to know how much uh, it was going to cost to have that removed. And she had no insurance. And I didn't know the answer to her question. You know, this was why we opened. And I was so excited. But she asked this question. And I didn't realize I didn't know. So I called the surgeon uh, who would perform the procedure. And I asked him how much he wanted for his fee. And, of course, he didn't know. So I said, well, give me a fee or I'll give her one for you. And so he said $500. And I thought that was very reasonable. So I I hung up on him, actually, before he changed his mind. <laughs> and as, a, as an anesthesiologist, I basically bill for my time. And I, I had a good idea of what my time was worth. And I knew this procedure was going to take 20 or 30 minutes. From the facility side, I knew the supplies required would be minimal. I'd been in the operating room long enough to know that, you know, some supplies cost more than others, and there were not going to be any expensive supplies to perform this case. So I was about to take her off hold when I realized she wanted to know at the end of this procedure, I was sure whether she had cancer or not. So I called a pathologist friend and I asked him how much he wanted, and of course he had no idea. So we went back and forth and I said, you know, this lady's been on hold for five minutes. I need an answer. She's going to hang up. And so he said $28. So I took her off hold and and I've told the story many, many times, but I, I said it's $1,900. And she said, for what? And I said, for everything. And she said, the the hospital down the street from you, you should know, wanted $19,000 uh, just for the facility. And, and after we performed her surgery and kind of sharpened our pencils, I realized we'd made a profit. And the pathology charges now have gone up significantly because the, the pathology part of diagnosing these cancers is much more sophisticated. But had the pathology prices not gone up, our price is the same. So that $1,900 breast biopsy is now $2,365 on our website, the entire increase of which is the manifestation of the increase in pathology charges over which I have no control. So that ultimately is, is how we create our prices. And, you know, we had a patient call, how much for a hernia surgery? And I went through the same motions and, you know, how much for a tonsillectomy? And I went through the same, you know, phone call and motions. And then one day, 
someone from our front office called me and said, someone's calling in for a tonsillectomy. How much should I quote them? And I said, aren't you writing these down? And, and so there was this list that was populated of prices that we could quote over the phone. Uh, and, and that's what we did until we launched the website with all of the prices in 2009. Well, backing up a little bit, uh, you uh, got your start, as you say, in 1997. People called, you gave them a quote. But the powers that be, the empire, you might say, didn't take kindly to uh, what you were doing being able to do these things at a fraction of the price with excellent results using board-certified surgeons and the like. And uh, the Oklahoma legislature, tell us in 2000 what they tried to do and then what others tried to do to put you out of business. Yeah, we were very unpopular uh, when we started. No one thought we would last six months, uh, and we were wildly successful, partly because the prices we were quoting were less than what people would pay with their deductible and copay if they use their insurance. So uh, none of the insurance companies would work with us. We wouldn't understand that until much later. But patients would rather go out of network and pay us uh, out of pocket rather than go to one of the big so-called not-for-profit hospitals and be in network because it would save them money. And that made us very unpopular with the hospitals, very unpopular with the insurance companies who wanted to control this patient flow. And and they did what most businesses, unfortunately, in the United States do. They went to their legislator and we began to see attacks in various forms. There was a there was an attack that masqueraded uh, as the trauma task force where uh, they tried to make the claim that no surgeons that worked at outpatient surgery centers took call at hospitals and took care of trauma patients. And that that was an attempt to outlaw physician ownership of facilities altogether. We beat that back because I received a tip from a legislator who I think you and I would both characterize as very left wing, but he saw us as the underdog. Uh, he saw us as the champions of the poor. And he let me know with a wink and a nod that I needed to be at this trauma task force, uh, that it might actually be about something else. Just the process of having gone through that has turned this legislator into what I would call a true libertarian. Just that experience transformed his entire outlook. Uh, There was also a law that was passed called the 30, or they attempted to pass called the 30% law where 30% of your revenue had to be derived from Medicare, Medicaid, or uncompensated care. And we took no government money whatsoever. And so this was directly, we were directly the target of this one. But I was involved in some public forums and debates regarding this 30% law. And a hospital administrator, normally a very coy individual, lost his temper and asked me how much of my revenue was uncompensated care. And that question haunted me because he was not an inarticulate fellow. And I thought, well, uncompensated care is care you would deliver for which you are not compensated. The more I thought about it, I realized uncompensated care for these not-for-profit hospitals is an actual revenue item. And it's, it's Orwellian to name it uncompensated care when it's actually a revenue item. And that 
that came to be very important later when we understood how some of the scams work uh, in the Empire hospitals. Then in 2000, which you're referring to, the hospitals weaponized the state health department and came after all of the medical records on patients at our facility uh, that we'd operated on in the year 2000 because they wanted all of our demographics. And I told them, no, none of these patients consented to the release of their information. And they said, we're the health department. We don't need their consent. And I said, you can't have them. And they said, then you're closed. And I said, well, brace yourself for for an injunction uh, because I'm not going to give them to you. And uh, we sued our state health department. Um, actually, we sued the individual members of the board, the president of which was my brother. And I <laughs> called my parents and told them, you're so you're going to be so proud of me. I've sued my brother. And of course, he had no idea the health department was coming after our records. And long story short, in discovery, we found they did not have the statutory authority to collect these records. So I have their surrender framed on my wall. But we we sustained all of these attacks, partly and primarily because we were competing. We were competing with these hospitals and we were thriving even without any insurance companies working with us. And we were trying to create a market. You know, I, I told legislators, just leave us alone. Just just don't pass any laws that hurt us and we'll do our part. We will we will introduce market discipline. We will drive quality higher and prices lower if you'll just let let us do our thing. And to their credit, they did. But uh, all of these attacks were uh, having an effect. Here you are offering low prices, good quality in a normal market. People would be lining up outside the door, and you were uh, you were hurting. Describe why you were hurting, which led to the decision you have to post prices so anywhere in the world people could see what you were charging for these procedures. Well, the one of the attacks uh, finally hit home where the church companies were successful in stacking deductibles. So patients that had come to us, as I described earlier, out-of-network now had to meet their in-network and out-of-network deductible to have any sort of benefit from their insurance to enter our doors. And it almost closed our facility. And I thought, just as you said, we're cheaper, we're better. There ought to be a line out the door. How do we let people know, you know, what our prices are? And it just made sense to launch a website uh, with the all-inclusive prices. And we did that with three goals in mind. One was for all of the folks who did not have insurance, uh, who had full bore sticker shock. We wanted them to better be able to find us. We also wanted to start a price war where patients could use our prices to leverage a better deal in their hometown or Is wherever that, they uh, patient in Georgia and other places did? Yes, absolutely. And that continues. But we also thought that if the prices are known, then we'll better understand the scams that are at work that prevent the long line out in front of our center and that some of these people who act as a cartel would be more exposed. Yeah, and, and I would argue all three of those goals have been accomplished. People contact me all the time and tell me they've, they've used our price uh, to force the hospital to match. Many times they'll get the hospital to match our price, and then they'll realize that 
they were almost the victim of an attempted robbery and decide not to patronize that hometown hospital after all and travel to Oklahoma City anyway. Now, uh, when you posted prices online, the first ones who uh, came in droves came from, of all places, Canada. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was shocked. Uh, the first patients that arrived after posting the site were Canadians. They you know, they all have coverage, uh, but they just don't have access to the care so many of them require. The most common story then is now was uh, a woman who required a hysterectomy. Many of these people uh, had bleeding so severe they had to have transfusions intermittently. And so for $8,000, they could pay uh, to come to Oklahoma City and have, have their operation and go home and be done with getting blood transfusions uh, and get about having a normal life. Um, I, I think that's instructive. Any, anybody that's thinking about uh, Medicare for all, any of these truly socialized systems, the way government balances their budget is through rationing. And and the Canadians coming to our facility, I think, is is good evidence of that. Well, like that woman, she was waiting to people would be waiting two or three years for a hysterectomy. Yes, two or three years is what we commonly hear. So uh, in uh, 2015, the legislature came around. Tell us about that. And then uh, Oklahoma County came around and you got uh, sports teams to uh, come along. So it's interesting how you're gained real traction from uh, people who thought you were crazy at the beginning. Well, one one of the rules we made at the beginning is we would never allow a surgeon privileges at our facility that we would not let operate on us. And as anesthesiologists in the operating room, we knew who those people were. And if it turned out they weren't those people, then we just kicked them out. We got rid of them and we maintained a surgical staff that was premier uh, and that included the best ear, nose, and throat surgeons or best orthopedists. So almost from the beginning, we were taking care of all of the Division I athletes in the state of Oklahoma and the professional athletes as well. So we had a very, very good reputation. Uh, right after we launched the website, we were surprised that uh, Oklahoma County, the largest county in the state, through the genius of a guy named John Wilkerson, who runs their benefits, he thought he saw massive savings for their self-funded health plan. And he he approached us, and in the first year, we worked with them. And this, keep in mind, they're paying the entire bill, the entire bill for the patient. So no deductibles, no co-pays. Uh, the health plan saved a little over $2 million on 1,000 employees, and the employees' out-of-pocket savings was about three-quarters of a million dollars. We we had Oklahoma County employees at Christmas time, uh, none of whom you and I would characterize as highly compensated. Uh, they would come up to us and say, thank you. You know, we're having Christmas this year. And our child is having their tonsillectomy. You know, up until this point, we were going to have to choose. So we heard stories like that from beneficiaries of self-funded health plans whose, whose company had completely waived their out-of-pocket. Uh, the state of Oklahoma was made aware of this savings. And if extrapolated to the number of employees the state of Oklahoma had, they look to save around $200 million in one year by operating in the same way. Keep in mind that is also waiving all patient out-of-pocket. 
there were some very brave, courageous legislators that pushed this. Um, the state health plan pushed back. The hospitals pushed back. And, and eventually it happened, although it was hamstrung uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and we, we operated with the state of Oklahoma for about, I think it was 16 months when the pressure from the hospitals prevailed. And the people from the state health plan came to me and said, we need a 40% cut on all of your prices or we can't work with you anymore. And my brave surgeons said, let's just fire them. So we did. We terminated the relationship with the state of Oklahoma after they, they played the bully card. Um, to this day, uh, I, I don't I think I know what happened. I mean, it was hospital pressure, but uh, a lot of the people that were responsible for that harebrained move now have got have received their pink slips from uh, the governor of Oklahoma. So, I've heard rumors that they're they're sniffing a little bit, thinking about coming back around. Uh, but you know, two hundred million dollars in the state of Oklahoma is is a lot of money. I think that's a lot of money in any state. Uh, but to walk away from that. Uh, just gives maybe people an idea politically how much how much power these big hospitals have. Well, this uh, gets to the very basic question: Why is hospital care so expensive when it shouldn't be? Well, keep in mind the prices we have listed on our website are prices at which we are profitable. We do not buy competitors. We do not build on endlessly to our facility. We don't buy ads during the Super Bowl. We don't have a high-priced administrator at our facility. You're looking at it. So a lot of what goes on in the hospitals is not because their costs are so high. It's that they are empire building, and they are constantly trying to increase their market share. And I tell people there are two economic models in this industry. One is the prevailing model, and that is the one meant to maximize revenue. And the other model, the one I think we champion, is a way to maximize the delivery of value. And fortunately, this value movement is growing. But the reason prices are so high at these hospitals, if you can even discover what they are, is because they are trying to maximize revenue. They will poor mouth it and tell you how hard things are and how high their costs are. But since when is the inefficiency of the seller the buyer's problem? We have that upside down in this country. Whenever somebody says it costs me so much more than my competitor to deliver a tonsillectomy, why is that the problem of the buyer of the tonsillectomy? That That's a direct quote from Jay Kempton, and I think we need to keep that in perspective. We'll get to Jay Kempton in a moment, but tell us about uh, the thing uh, which you call the uncompensated care racket, <laughs> where uh, where a hospital has a fake price and then says, oh, look at all the money we lost. Well, walk us through that, which allows them to... Uh, poor mouth while buying competitors and paying uh, huge salaries. That's right. I made a two-minute video called the $100 aspirin uh, to help people explain that a uh, you know, hospital charges $100 for an aspirin and the insurance company pays them $20. Uh, 
uh, and the hospital just bemoaning the fact that they just lost $80. Well, they paid less than a penny for the aspirin. So they didn't really lose $80, but they will claim they did. And they need that $80 loss, fictional loss, to maintain the fiction of their not-for-profit status. And and keep in mind, not-for-profit to them just means don't pay tax. That's all that means. So hospitals need these fictional losses to maintain their not-for-profit status. It doesn't end there, though. They put all of these losses in a bucket and mail them off to Washington. And then Washington, D.C. gives them a kickback to the extent that they claim these losses. So a $100,000 bill reduced to $20,000 is an $80,000 loss. And the hospitals essentially receive a commission or a kickback to the extent that they claim these losses. Uh, The insurance companies are happy to get in on this game. So the insurance companies will pay $20 for this $100 aspirin. Of course, the insurance companies shouldn't even pay a nickel, but they do. They pay $20, but then they ride into the self-funded employer group and say, look at how powerful our insurance company is at discounting these ridiculous hospital bills. We discounted this hospital bill from $100 for this aspirin down to 20 we saved you $80, and per the terms of our agreement, you owe us a commission for that savings. What many employers don't know is all of these terms are prearranged, so there really is no discount achieved whatsoever. The other thing the employers should know and just think through, the insurance company actually makes off better if the hospital had charged $200 for this aspirin. So it really is a racket, and the insurance companies and the hospitals uh, work together like this. And that's one reason insurance companies will not work with our facility, because with the prices available to the eyes of anyone who will look, this discounting repricing game is an opportunity foregone for them. Explain, uh, for those who don't know, self-funded employers, in effect, they uh, self-insure. They have uh, caps from insurance companies above a certain level so they don't go broke on somebody with a huge expense. But uh, walk us through self-funding and uh, how they should not think of their broker or their insurance company, which administrates this plan as their friend. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Walk us through that. Yeah. So self-funding essentially is when a company Generally, 50 employees or larger uh, decides to pay for their employees' medical expenses out of operational revenue rather than buy a service from Blue Cross, United Aetna, Cigna, someone like that, to take that risk. By doing that, they, they essentially hand their checkbook to a third-party administrator, typically, um, and that, that outfit you know, before they pay a bill, they ensure that indeed this person is a full-time employee and it's a legitimate expense. It's not some cosmetic surgery facelift. It, it actually is a legitimate medical expense, not, not a cosmetic thing, something like that. So most companies uh, that are 50 or 100 employees or larger in the United States are self-funded. 
I knew when we put our prices online that self-funded companies that have really the same sticker shock as individuals who buy care, uh, uninsured people with high deductibles or HSAs, I knew these self-funded companies with this sticker shock would want to buy what we were selling at those prices. And that's how I met Jay Kempton. Uh, Jay runs a third-party administrator, so he has the checkbook for, I don't know how many clients he has now, but he has dozens and dozens of clients. And he basically pays the bills for all of those companies' employees uh, on an account that is owned by initially by the company, but then is part of this ERISA plan. When he and I met, he he was looking for me and I was looking for him. And and it was a, a partnership in heaven. I mean, it's, it's he's a great guy and we have worked together beautifully since, but his clients have saved millions and millions of dollars by, by paying, you know, the prices on our website that are one-sixth to one-tenth, uh, typically, of what the so-called not-for-profit hospitals charge. So the self-funded community typically hires a broker or a consultant, unaware that this broker or consultant is actually paid by one of the Death Star insurance companies. like What you call the Bucas? Yeah, the Bucas, Blue United, Cigna, Aetna, and you know, whose bread I eat, his song I must sing. And, you know, these brokers and consultants are paid by the Bukas, and they're not paid typically by the employer. And so these brokers will recommend that a self-funded plan act in a certain way, unaware that the commissions that this broker derives from giving that advice are astronomical. Uh, there is a growing, rapidly growing movement in the United States, which is a wonderful thing to see, of brokers who are fee-based, where employers who now are responding to smelling salts have awakened, and they now realize they need to pay their consultant. They need to be the buyer of the service, not the adversary on the other side of the broker buying buying the services of the broker really to sell everything in the world uh, that they want to inflict on these self-funded plans. One of the crazy things that is happening in medicine, you experienced in the early 90s, uh, what Medicare says you should receive for a a certain service is absolutely arbitrary and uh, many cases is uh, driving uh, physicians out of the industry at a time when costs are ballooning. Explain to us back in the early 90s, uh, I think it came out of Harvard, but uh, the government uses it. It's called only government could come up with something like this resource based relative value scale, which are codes and prices fixed by bureaucrats for uh, reimbursements for physicians, procedures, equipment. Walk us through that crazy thing. Yeah, there's no better example of Soviet-style central planning inflicted on an industry than the resource-based relative value scale. Uh, In 1990, when I entered private practice, Medicare paid me about $1,100 to perform anesthesia for an open-heart surgery. Um, In 1992, under a Republican president, Bush, the resource-based relative value scale was inflicted on the industry 
the idea being that the smart people at Harvard knew what price should be attached to every physician service rendered in the United States. Uh, so in 1992, my $1,100 payment became $550. In 1993, not satisfied that they'd gotten it right the first time, that $550 payment uh, became $285. So the last open heart uh, surgery for which I provided an anesthesia uh, service, I was paid $285. The last total knee replacement that I gave an anesthetic for, Medicare paid me $78. And, and I'd read enough about prices and economics at that time to know this was not personal, uh, as punishing as it seemed. These prices were inflicted, and so they weren't true market prices, uh, and they were all wrong. Uh, they were either too high or too low. It didn't take a fool to see that those services that were underpriced vaporized. So uh, give us a couple of examples of uh, where uh, they underpriced and therefore created artificial shortages and where they overpriced and created uh, artificial surpluses. That's exactly what happened. I, I'm a good example. When When Medicare told me I was worth $78 for a knee replacement. I, I responded with a rational signal of my own and just quit. I, I didn't quit seeing Medicare patients. I just quit filing claims and took care of them free of charge because it was essentially, uh, it was charity. And I didn't want to participate in the care under those coercive terms. There were a lot of uh, angioplasties done. I mean, there were a lot of things that where the prices were too high uh, and some of that has become more normal, but you can still see many services that are overly abundant. And it's because of this uh, highly priced RV, RVS formula. And there are a lot of services like cardiac anesthesia, orthopedic anesthesia, uh, where you know, it, it's hard to find someone who's willing to perform those services without some sort of a subsidy given to them by the hospitals. Explain then why these massive consolidations in the industry, insurers, hospitals getting bigger and bigger. It's not true market forces. It's in effect government policy that is uh, enabling this crushing of uh, competition. Why all these consolidations? The consolidations are are deliberate and planned, I believe. Um, in Obamacare, there was this caveat called the medical loss ratio, and no more than 30% of any insurance company's revenue could be used for administrative expenses. Well, that's all well and good if you're a multi-billion dollar giant behemoth. Um, that's not well and good necessarily if you're a smaller mom and pop insurance company. The large insurance companies wrote large parts of uh, the Unaffordable Care Act, and one of the things they're most proud of was this 30% medical loss ratio because it ran all of the smaller insurance companies out of business. So we now basically have just four or five. That's, that's the primary reason for the insurance company consolidation. Hospitals have consolidated because Medicare has decided in their wisdom to overpay for the physician services uh, rendered 
by physicians who are employed by hospitals. Hospitals have used this extra revenue to buy physician practices. And many times they'll go into a smaller town that has a hospital, buy all the physician practices, and then demand that they send all referrals to the mothership. And that starves out the local hospital, which they can then buy on the cheap. And so they are consolidated kind of into the empire. And there's a lot of that going on, all of it aided and abetted by Uncle Sam. I tell people, you know, big pharma, hospitals, insurance companies, they all deserve to be thumped. I mean, everybody deserves the thrashing that they get. But we have to remember Uncle Sam is driving the getaway car. Without all of these favors auctioned off in Washington, D.C., none of these scams are possible. Quickly go through the problems with uh, things like PPOs, uh, HMOs, or even the Obamacare accountable care organizations. Uh, the way they operate, they do better by denying treatment to patients. That's right. The way HMOs and particularly the ACOs, which are basically HMOs by any other name, they reward physicians to the extent that revenue is preserved. Uh, and it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that revenue is preserved when physicians do not make referrals to specialists and other necessary things like that. They avoid surgery and you know make someone go to physical therapy forever instead of having their problem actually fixed. So ACOs, the physicians directly benefit from denying care. Some HMOs work that way. Typically, an HMO works that way, and it does not share any sort of revenue with anyone. And having said that, I've worked with HMOs who save so much money by using our facility that they actually love the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. So um, that's that's fun. Now, PPOs are are a disaster. They use this false discounting game where if you stay in our network, then, you know, you'll get a 40% discount. My friend, Corey Cook, who's an ERISA lawyer, uh, whenever she gives a speech, she asks the audience this question. She says, if I tell you I will sell you my house for 50% off, what should be your next question? And everyone agrees, 50% off of what? But no one asks that question in the medical industry. And that is an insight into how PPOs work. One, one hospital administrator told Jay Kempton he thinks of PPOs as ATM machines for his hospital. Wow. Now, advice that you give to uh, medical students, you say never work as a salaried employee of a hospital. You may do a residency or something like that, but whatever you do, don't become an employee of a hospital. Why? I tell medical students that because the dilemma of do I do what's best for this patient in front of me or do I do what's best for my employer is inevitable. Uh, it will happen. And no physician should ever, ever be in that position. But it, it is simply a matter of time before the interests of the patient collide with the interests of the employer. For instance, a patient needs their gallbladder taken out, and this hospital-employed internist or family medicine doc, they know they have to refer to the general surgeon at that hospital whether he's any good or not. 
God help them if they refer to an outside surgeon, uh, outside of the family, as I say, who really is good at that surgery. They will be held to account for stepping out of line. And no, no physician should ever be in the position of doing anything except what is exactly the right thing for their patients. Even if a student has a large debt, which is all too common, shouldn't be, but all too common among uh, students today, you recommend forego the big salary for two or three years and you'll end up with a better and perhaps more lucrative career. I do. I do recommend people forego the hospital employment because hospitals are very savvy in making sure that you can't wiggle off the hook. One of the barbs on the hook is that the malpractice policy that is provided uh, requires that upon exit that the physician buy a tail policy. Many times uh, it's unaffordable, a quarter of a million dollars or more, so even more money uh, that the physician doesn't have. And And they have no competes that covers certain radius. So the physician would basically have to leave town, completely start over, and buy a tail policy. Uh, So they make it very difficult to check out once you've checked in. One of the things they employ, explain RVUs. So RVUs are relative value units, and that's an answer to a problem uh, the hospitals had early on. Early on, when hospitals started buying physician practices, they would just tell a physician, we're going to pay you let's say $180,000 a year, and it's not tied to any kind of performance at all. We're just going to pay you this, and this is wonderful because, you know, in your dog-eat-dog world, you know, you had to worry, you know, am I producing enough to feed my family? You don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, physicians do what anybody would do if they're not properly aligned incentives. They paid this money. They went on vacation. They went to the beach and they didn't work at all. And the hospitals could not get any work out of them with these sort of guarantees. Their their answer to that was this system that's now called relative value units. So for every test that's ordered, for every referral that's made, for every patient that's seen, there's a formula that justifies the financial existence of this position in the hospital scheme. And physicians have found many times they can generate more RVUs by ordering tests than they can by seeing patients. And that is why many times it's difficult to get into the office of a hospital-employed physician whose waiting room is empty because they don't really have to see patients. They just see a few patients and order a lot of tests. And, of course, the price uh, that everyone ultimately pays goes up but it's difficult to get care. It's a very bad system. Now, just a few days ago, CMS Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services came out with their uh, ruling on pricing transparency. Is that going to work or will the hospitals find a way around it and only people like you are going to get them to post real prices? I think it is not going to work, but there is a good thing about it Now, if you don't post prices or you don't make people aware of your pricing, uh, you know, you're subject to fines. So a complete 180. So I think the narrative uh, will change. 
I think that the hospitals have already figured out a way around this. Uh, what they're going to list uh, are their charge master prices, which are meaningless. Uh, you know, it's like a car dealer listing the price for a gas pump or a steering wheel instead of the price of the car. In the hospitals, many of them have realized they're just better off paying the fines. So they'll buy their way out of um, posting prices. Uh, and I also know this, there is a very robust effort to redefine price transparency so that it means something very different than what you and I would characterize as price transparency. Uh, and the new definition is going to be the, the patient's out of pocket. And that, of course, is not price transparency, but there is they've had a lot of success. The big insurance and hospital lobby have had a lot of success with that. Now, uh, they say rural hospitals. Uh, there may be only one. Uh, how do you get uh, competition there? And this gets into uh, the whole concept of direct primary care. Explain that to us. So rural hospitals are, are definitely in a competitive environment, even if they're the only one in, the, in a county, because there's one in the next county. And there's also a big hospital that is just sucking all the referrals out of that town. The answer to rural hospitals, I think, is allowing the physicians who work there an opportunity to own those hospitals. I think that there are physicians I know who are in the big city who would move to a rural uh, surrounding if they thought they had the opportunity to to own and operate that hospital. So, you know, monopolies really in the medical industry are, I think, really only operational in the big cities uh, where there supposedly is market competition. But there, there's not much unless you come to a place like Oklahoma City. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, what about uh, lower income people who don't qualify for Medicaid, which is a flawed system, but uh, don't have the resources to uh, pay these prices? You would argue that if you had a true free market, they would get the kind of prices you offer, which are a fraction of what uh, they face today when they go to a hospital. Yeah, that's correct. Um, to quote my co-founder, Steve Lantier, uh, he says that current prices were all poor. Uh, and, you know, that's what the market does. I mean, the market drives prices down and it drives quality up in every other industry. People also who ask, what about the poor they're considering the poor in the aggregate. Uh, and I would encourage people to be on guard for that. And every patient has an individual circumstance and, and they should be treated as individuals. If, if they're treated in the aggregate, then we beg for a system answer. And that's going to come from government. and It's not going to make any sense. The physicians I work with will donate their time and services for someone who's poor and unfortunate who's in the situation you've described. Sometimes we'll ask them to pay for the cost of the supplies or have their family gather resources to pay the cost of supplies. So we're not actually donating the cost of supplies. That might be two or three hundred dollars on a procedure you would see on our website. So you know, the what about the poor is typically a, a, a question meant to, you know, dash free market healthcare on the rocks and, and kill the idea 
but it's the equivalent of saying we shouldn't be nice to our neighbor because we have no chance for world peace. And I, I think, you know, we're on the right track. Prices are falling. Uh, they're falling quickly in Oklahoma City, and they're falling other places because we've posted ours online, which means people far from Oklahoma City are finding themselves in a competitive market as if we were right across the street. And the farther prices fall, the fewer are the number of people, as you described. So uh, you describe yourself as an optimist, but uh, two questions arise. One is, what about the future from regulators in Washington? And two, we touched on it earlier, given the demonstrable fact that you and others like you who charge such low prices, why hasn't that uh, forced all these other institutions to do the same? Or is it just slowly beginning to happen? Yeah, I, I remain optimistic. Uh, cheaper and better is a very, very powerful uh, idea. I think it's difficult for my competitors. I think it's impossible for government. Uh, it's very, very difficult for government to argue against uh, cheaper and better. And so I remain optimistic because I believe the market is both powerful and beautiful. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and and it will not be completely uh, stamped out. I don't see the threat materializing uh, in my lifetime that we would be in a situation where the American people have to put up with a DMV-like service uh, for their medical care. Now, in closing, traditional hospitals say, oh, well, we need high prices because we have to take care of the indigent. We've got emergency rooms, and therefore uh, your model is not applicable to them. They, they have to burden these extra costs. Yeah, I would, I would encourage everyone when they drive past the hospital to notice the crane building on to their emergency room. Who builds on to their loss leader? You know, the, the emergency rooms where no one pays what was the poor mouthing mantra we heard from the hospitals during Obamacare, and it, and it was very effective. But also keep in mind, every time a hospital performs a service and is not paid for it, they claim that as a loss and they are paid for it. So I, I say hospitals are paid even when they aren't paid because of this uncompensated care scam. So, you know, whenever you look at a hospital, ask yourself, why would they be building on to this emergency room that is supposedly bankrupting them? They're making a lot of money. Uh, there's just a lot of accounting shell games going on uh, to hide that fact. Well, Keith Smith, thank you very much for uh, being with us. Uh, thank you for your true pioneering efforts in showing that in healthcare, you can uh, do well by providing better services at lower and lower prices. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be with you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes. Looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.